Welcome back to Zillennials Podcast. Today on Zillennials, we're going to be trying true crime. As Leon and I have said, we both enjoy dipping our toes into the realm of true crime every once in a while, just because it can be really interesting to hear about different cases. So the one that we're going to be talking about today is one that has a podcast on it, actually, and it's about Dr. Christopher Dunch. The podcast that I originally came into contact with for this case was called Dr. Death by Laura Beal. I believe it's on Wondery, so if you know Wondery's podcasts, it is one of the Wondery podcasts. Kaylee, why did you decide to pick this podcast or this case for your part of our true crime series? So I picked this one because it combines two different things that I find very fascinating. It combines the medical field, which I've always found that to be like kind of fascinating just because we're all human and we all have some sort of experience with the medical field. And it also combines true crime, which I feel like is a combination that you don't see that often. I feel like a lot of times with true crime, it's about like murders and homicides and things like that. And so I really like this one because it was definitely a different approach to true crime. And I think like it really made me think a lot deeper about things like our medical system. And it really made me think about the people who I trust for my medical care. I think you're right. I think the majority of cases that I've listened to or documentaries that I've watched were murders and kidnappings. And maybe every now and then there's a fraud case. So I thought it was interesting because we can get into a summary in a second, but I thought it was interesting how they mentioned in the podcast about how some doctors were concerned how it was the criminal justice system deciding what happens to this doctor because they're worried about the, I guess, encroachment into the operating room and into their field. So I thought that was an interesting dynamic. Definitely. So in this case, it starts off with Dr. Christopher Dunch. So Christopher Dunch is this doctor who practiced in Texas primarily. Growing up, he was known for always being really hardworking He played football in high school and also in college, and he actually was a walk-on to the Colorado State Rams and played football for them. He later decided that he wanted to change colleges, and he transferred to the University of Memphis because this was his second time transferring. He wasn't able to play college football for the University of Memphis, and so because of that, he kind of had to go and find a new avenue to pursue. Because it kind of sounds like, I don't know if you got this, Leon, but to me, it kind of sounded like from the podcast and from the articles that I read, he kind of wished that he could have been like a pro football player almost. Did you get that vibe? I think I got that vibe. I can't remember if they specifically stated that he's on record saying that that's what he wanted to do, but it seemed like football was something that he was very passionate about and very into because there was those stories about how... When he didn't understand a drill, he would be that person just there all the time practicing it, and then he would eventually get better. But then also the person was like, yeah, he still didn't really get it, but he got better. Yeah, I thought that that was like kind of funny and interesting. It really did show a lot about his character, though. He seemed like somebody who was really hardworking, who maybe just couldn't quite get there. And I thought that it was really interesting, too, because when I was re-listening to the podcast Initially, when I was listening to Dr. Death, the podcast, I had listened to it more as like a more as like through a true crime lens where I was like, oh, my gosh, it's so horrible. All of these things that he's doing. 
And I think the second time listening to it, I still felt like all of these things that he was doing were just horrible. But it also kind of made me feel a little bit of compassion towards him because it seemed like maybe it wasn't that he was intending to hurt all of these people. It was just that he maybe wasn't 100% sure of what he was doing. And that was not something that I felt the first time I listened to this podcast. What did you think? I thought that was really interesting, too, because I think the initial knee-jerk reaction is to just not like him and think, oh, he hurt all these people. He must be a terrible person. But I think one thing that the podcast did really well, because I know you did some outside research, but since this was your case, I pretty much just listened to the podcast and I only listened to it once, so I didn't get you know the extra insights. But I thought the podcast did a good job of kind of presenting in a full picture where, I don't know, if he heard it, he may disagree. But I thought it did humanize him in a way where when they were talking to his friends from before any of this happened, and then at the end when it's like he was pretty much almost like crying to his dad on the phone where it makes you think, okay, he should have been stopped. Like he shouldn't have been allowed to continue surgery. But then it's like, I think like the main question that the podcast poses too is like, did he do all this on purpose? And was he like a cold hearted person or was he someone who just wasn't that good at his job? Yeah. And I think that that was something that I picked up on more the second time, because I think the first time I was like, oh, he was totally intentional in doing all of this. And I think the second time I had a little bit more of a question like, wait, was he? And so I think that that's something that it definitely left me wondering. I kind of feel like to a certain extent, and this is just my opinion, I feel like to a certain extent, he probably had to have been intentional in some of the things that he did. Like some of the injuries that he gave his patients were just so severe. And, you know, he had people in the operating room who were telling him to stop and he was just like, oh, no, I've got it. I've got it. And so to me, that sends up more of a red flag. Like it kind of makes me think, OK, maybe this was intentional, but I don't know. Well, I think what's interesting with that is I know one of the doctors mentioned how he graduated from I think they said some, like one of the top notch spinal surgery programs, but somehow he did so without doing the, I guess, the average number of surgeries that a future spinal surgeon is typically expected to do in the program. So I feel like if he was in the operating room and let's say he didn't know anything because he didn't get to practice enough, I think it's interesting where it could be intentional in the fact that if people are saying, hey, stop you know, take a minute. Do you want to consult someone or do you want to stop or something like that? And you keep going. Like, obviously, that means you made the choice to intentionally keep going. I just wonder whether the intention was to hurt them or if the intention was like, oh, I know what I'm doing. I need want to prove myself like I don't need your help kind of thing. Yeah, it definitely does pose that question. So like we were saying, he studied, I said the University of Memphis before, that's incorrect. It was the University of Tennessee at Memphis. But while he was there, he was a part of a startup called Dysgenics, which essentially worked on using stem cells for back and spinal injuries. So what they did was they patented this technology to grow stem cells for discs in the spine. 
And, you know, he had a lot of professors and people who really believed in this. He got quite a few investors, like people who were at his university. But later on, what happened was a lot of those investors kind of lost faith in him. For example, one of the investors, Rand Page, he saw firsthand that Dunch was abusing substances. Like, for example, he would start off the day with like a vodka and orange juice. And one time he opened up his desk drawer and there was like a whole bunch of cocaine and like dollar bills folded up or rolled up, I should say. Not folded. I feel like that wouldn't work. <laughs> but um, Yeah. So he saw that, you know, he was clearly struggling with some sort of substance abuse. And, you know, even the ex-girlfriend of a close friend testified to this and said, like, before he went to do his rounds at the hospital, there were times where he was doing like cocaine and pills at the party the night before. I remember that story. That was crazy. It's like, I feel like with those types of stories, I don't necessarily want to believe everything because I feel like this is like you know, one of those things where it's like second, third hand account, like I wasn't there or something like that. But I think with the at least like with that story where even if every single detail wasn't true, I feel like the overall like he was up late partying, doing all sorts of stuff like whether he used one drug or the other or drank or whatever. Like, I feel like that doesn't matter as much because I feel like you shouldn't really do that the night before you're about to go into work as a doctor anyway. But maybe that's just me. No, I definitely feel that way, too. I look at that and I'm like, you know, if somebody had said that my doctor had been at a party where people were like drinking, doing drugs like cocaine the night before, I'd be like, yeah, let's uh, let's I'm, I'm going to go to a different doctor. Like, no, thank you. Like, I understand the divide between personal and professional. But I just think if you're doing that like so close to the time when you're going to be doing something like operating on a person, especially like as a neurosurgeon, that's really troubling. I agree. I think obviously you don't necessarily, not like in this specific case with like the drugs and the doctors and stuff, but just in general, like you don't necessarily want what people's personal lives and like what they're doing there to always like come into work. But I think if you're a doctor and you're going to be working on other people, that I feel like what you do, let's say immediately, like the night before, almost is part of your professional life because like you have to factor in the whole amount of time that it would take your body to metabolize stuff. Yeah, I agree. It's kind of like, for example, teaching. If I ran into like a kid's parent on a school night and I was absolutely wasted, they would probably raise a couple eyebrows, you know, they would be like, oh, like you do this and then you go to teach my kids the next day. Granted, like if it's your weekend and you're off and you want to have a couple of drinks, I look at that and I'm like, you know, I think that that's a different scenario. But if you're going and you're doing these things before you come into work and you know that it's likely going to impact your ability to do that work, you probably shouldn't be doing it. I think so too, but I think also we're very uh, straight and narrow, so <laughs> I don't think it's something we actually like, because I think to us it's just so mind-blowing that someone would consider doing that, but I think maybe other people don't have those reservations. Yeah, I agree with that. I could see that, Leon. We very much are like on the straight and narrow, <laughs> like you said. <laughs> <laughs> so after he was at the University of Tennessee at Memphis, he started his career as a neurosurgeon. So he had all of these impressive credentials, you know, with his work with dysgenics, 
Um, but later, people, like you had said previously, Leon, found out that he had been spending way more time in the lab than actually operating. So people at first, you know, didn't really question this, didn't really look into it too much. It was more so after he had all of these botched surgeries that people kind of started to go and look at it and try to examine his credentials a little bit closer. So his first job was at the Minimally Invasive Spine Institute in Plano, Texas, which Plano is apparently like a pretty affluent or bougie area. I wouldn't really know. I haven't really been to Texas that much. And they gave him a $600,000 advance, which is wild. Oh my gosh. When I heard, they're like, yeah, they gave him a $600,000 advance. I was like, could you imagine? You have $600,000 just available to you and you haven't done a single day of work. Yeah, that would be absolutely mind-blowing. I look at that and I'm like, a $600,000 advance, like, that pays off pretty much all your med school loans, I would think. I mean, like, I, I don't know. I'm not actually a med student, clearly. I feel like it would at least make a decent chunk into them because I feel like med school is a little longer than, let's say, law school. But, I mean, easily for three years of law school, you can rack up 100000 plus. Yeah, but I look at that and I'm like, I feel like that would cover... At least, like you're saying, at least a good portion of your uh, student loan debt. And so I'm like, that's just crazy. Like, if somebody gave me 600 grand to start at a job, I would be like, I don't even know what to do with this. Like, maybe I can go and buy a house. I'd be like, this is just wild to me. Can we take a moment and acknowledge how we're like, oh, he got a $600,000 advance. And then we're talking about paying off loans and buying houses with it. Like, I feel like that's probably not where his mind went. Probably not. But I look at it too. And I'm like, and this was back in like, what, like the 2010s? I'm like, you know, it was worth even more then. And you're like, oh my gosh, it's crazy. I honestly don't know what I would do if I had $600,000 just appear. Like, I would feel like I won the lottery. I feel like it sounds kind of silly, but to me, I feel like that's almost too much money to get at once. Like, I just wouldn't know what to do other than pay off loans. Yeah, I would pay off loans, buy a house, or invest it. I think that would be like the three things that I would do. Or alternatively, if I was like someplace where like my family wasn't, maybe buy like a little place that like my family could come and stay at so that they could come and visit. <laughs> I feel like we're so responsible with these choices. I know. I'm like, okay. I don't think that's where his mind was, though. But um, I think part of the reason why he got such a big advance is because he'd gotten these great recommendations from his professors. You know, one of them had even said that he was like one of the brightest students they'd ever seen. For example, this is a quote from one of the articles that I read. We were told that Dunch was one of the best and smartest neurosurgeons they ever trained as they went on at length about his strengths when asked about Dun Dr. Dunch's weaknesses or areas for improvement, the supervising physician communicated that the only weakness that Dunch had was that he took on too many tasks for one person. So if that's not a glowing recommendation, I don't know what is. I think it would be interesting. I have a feeling that these people didn't want to talk because they knew what happened. But I feel like it'd be very interesting to hear more from the people that gave recommendations. Because... I think also it's like maybe he was a good researcher. He just wasn't like his skills as a researcher weren't the same skills as he was practicing. Yeah, I, I could see that because I feel like research and then like practicing are two very different things. But 
One of the things that I thought that was really interesting is when he was let go from the Minimally Invasive Spine Institute at Plano, it was because of a falling out with other doctors because he wasn't like doing rounds enough or checking up on his patients enough, which I was a little surprised at. I was like, oh, really? Like, I thought that it was malpractice. But from what I read, it seems like it was primarily because he wasn't doing rounds enough. Which I feel like you, if after surgery, you're supposed to do rounds is which one of the doctors I think was interviews made it sound like I guess it could in a way be malpractice that he's not checking in, especially because they were saying that one of his patients wasn't doing well. But do you remember the story of how he didn't show up for rounds because he had like gone off to Vegas, allegedly? Honestly, no, I don't quite remember that one, but I would believe it. That sounds like something he would do. I was just so confused by that because it's like, okay, so if you're on call, I don't think you can just go off to Vegas. No, it's kind of like if you were to be on call and say, for example, something like the military, I know they give you like a range and it's like you can't be outside of this mile range or else, you know, obviously you're not on call. You got to put in time. You have to be able to get back in a reasonable amount of time. Exactly. But I know that like essentially not rounding on his uh, patients seems like it was something that kind of continued throughout the whole scheme of uh, what happened. Well, what I thought was interesting about the whole thing was that it was really the other medical professionals that I think eventually forced any sort of follow up or consequences to happen at all. Because it was like, I know there was one of the nurses that was in the operating room and then Dr. Dunch like told him to do something. And the nurse was saying, oh, basically nurses will do whatever the lead doctor says unless they think it puts the patient at danger. And so then he left because he was like, I'm not going to do this. So he left to go tell his supervisor. And then the supervisor came in and was like, hey, we can't do that. And then Dr. Junks got really mad. Yeah, that sounds about right. I know that there are like a couple of more like specific stories. I think one of his vascular surgeons, maybe even more than one, had a voiced concern for sure. They were like, yeah, you shouldn't be doing what you're doing. I forget what type of surgeon he was. But I think a big a person who played a big role in getting, I guess, making other people pay attention to this was Dr. Henderson. Oh, yes. What I thought was interesting about him is that a lot of the people who talked about him said, yeah, he's the type of guy to just keep his mouth shut, do his work. And like, you know, with like workplace drama and stuff like that, he would just kind of ignore it and just do his do his job. And so I feel like the fact that he felt the need to stick his own head out and put himself out there based on what other people say about his workplace persona that it seemed almost not like it was more credible, but I feel like if it was someone who was like always complaining about other doctors, I think people might not take it as seriously, but because they knew that he doesn't often talk about other doctors, that it's kind of a signal that it's something serious. Yeah. And the guy that you're talking about, Dr. Henderson. So what happened was he had actually been called in to look at x-rays from one of Dunch's patients, Mary Efert. And that's when he kind of saw firsthand what was happening with Dr. Dunch. And, you know, he'd heard like rumors around the rumor mill, but he, I don't think, had had very much firsthand experience with Dunch prior to this. And uh, that was really the turning point where he realized, you know, like this guy, he said something along the lines of it almost looks intentional, like this guy could be very dangerous. So after. The Minimally Invasive Spine Institute, 
He moved on to working at Baylor Plano, still in Texas. Pretty much all of his jobs are in Texas, um, which I was kind of surprised about. I figured if he was malpracticing, he might try to like hop states because I feel like that would be more difficult to uh, catch him. But he went to Baylor Plano and then he operated on Lee Passmore, Kelly Martin and Jerry Summers. This may have been like right around that same time that he was at the Minimally Invasive Spine Institute. I think he had operating rights at Baylor Plano at that time. But Lee Passmore was one of his first patients. To give you a little bit of background about Lee Passmore, he was hooked on opiates because he had this pain that would radiate from his back and down to his legs after a surgery that he had previously. One thing that I thought was really interesting is Lee Passmore was actually an investigator in Collin County's medical examiner's office. And so he saw, you know, some of these things about Dunch come through that office. And so he definitely had cause for concern. But, you know, this was previous to any of those things coming through that office. He was really looking to kind of fix up his pain. He wanted it to be, you know, permanently done with. So he decided to be operated on. His pain management specialist said, you know, it probably wasn't a good idea, but he was like, but if you really are set on this, I'll give you the card for Christopher Dunch. And so the surgery was supposed to remove a herniated disc. Dr. Mark Hoyle was on the surgery as well, and he said that there was a lot of blood, but you couldn't really see much else. They were supposed to remove the disc because it was pressing on the nerve, and that was what was causing the pain. However, and this is a uh, quote for what happened He announced that he would be removing the ligament that separates the disc from the spinal canal. The posterior longitudinal ligament is one of the spine's two major stabilizers. It's less than a millimeter from the spinal canal. And Hoyle essentially stepped in front of Dunch to try to block his way. He was very much against this move that Dunch was trying to make. So he had kind of stepped in to try to stop the bleeding that Dunch had caused and kind of clean everything up and just generally stop Dunch from continuing. Dunch had put a cage into the spine. Uh, They later found out that it was not positioned well, but they couldn't really move it because Dunch had stripped the screw. And Hoyle pretty much said, yeah, this guy is really bad news. He's like, I'm not operating with him again. So he canceled his next three out of four surgeries with Dunch. So I can't remember... If it was this patient, which it might have been because I think they were talking about replacing a disc. I feel like I just don't know much about the spine because obviously I know it's like there's the bones and then there's the disc and stuff like that. But then they were talking about how like they can like slice out the disc and then like put this like more permanent like solid piece in to just kind of like wedge the gap between the two things. And I was just like, man, this is why surgeons go to school for so long and get paid the big bucks. Obviously, it didn't work out in this specific case, but just in general, because I'm like that, because I feel like it's like one of those things where it's like, it just takes a lot of skill to be able to do that and not hurt someone. Yeah. And you think about it, too, and it's such a high pressure situation all of the time. It's like whatever decision you make, it could save someone's life or it could end someone's life at every moment. And it's just I feel like that's just such a high stress job. That's why they go to school for so long and they train for so long. So they know what to do in those situations. And I think that's also, it makes sense, like why some of the concern with the number of surgeries that Dr. Dunch did before working as a surgeon, like when he was still training, because I feel like, I think one of the doctors said something like, oh, like if he had even, because I think he said that 
someone was saying about Dr. Jones that he had done maybe like a few hundred or maybe even less surgeries in total before graduating from the program. And then the doctor that they were talking to was saying, oh, like if he had said even 1500, then I would say, oh, that's low. But it's still like kind of conceivable. And I don't exactly remember which episode this is from, but all my information comes straight from the podcast. So if you need to fact check it or look it up, go there. But it just, I feel like even if you did do the required, I don't know, what, like maybe 15 to 2000, maybe more. I don't know. I don't run a spinal surgery program, but I feel like even then you probably haven't done enough. Yeah. I feel like especially starting out, it's kind of like when you're a new teacher, they just kind of throw you in there and they're like, you have gotten this training, apply it. But yeah, I think it said that he did about 100 surgeries and typically there need to be at least about 1,000 done to get your degree. So he was doing about 10% of what really should have happened for him to be practicing. In terms of Lee Passmore, he also now has difficulty walking for the rest of his life because of this. Uh, And initially he had thought about pursuing legal action but was concerned that it had been a one-time thing. Later on... uh, Like I said, he saw documentation pass through his office where Dunch had botched other surgeries, such as one with Kelly Martin. And he kind of took this information to his boss and was like, hey, what do you think about this? Like, this guy is the one who did my surgery. And then same thing happened when Barry Morgoloff was operated on. So he saw this paperwork coming in time and time again with these botched surgeries from Dr. Dunch. What I think is interesting is that I think if things aren't reported to some sort of database that the patient has access to, I think one patient even referred like, oh, I looked them up and everything looked okay. Where if they don't have access to this information, then if something does happen, I feel like you would be more likely to think, oh, this was a one-time thing. It's not a pattern because when you looked it up, there was no previous things to make you think it would be a pattern. Yeah. And I remember specifically from the podcast, wasn't there that one uh, lady that he paid to do like a commercial for him? I don't I don't remember the details, but I know there was some commercial for his, I don't know if it's for him or when he opened his like own little business thing and how it was a commercial. But then I think the person talking about it said it was really more of like an infomercial Yeah, like he made it seem like he had operated on this woman and she was more or less just like a paid actor. And so I thought that that was really sketchy. I was like, oh, you have to like pay people to give you your good reviews like that to me seems a little little questionable. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I know a lot of times in ads, like there'll be the little text saying real person compensated for their testimony, which I feel like is a little different because I'm like, Okay, it's supposedly a real person. Yeah, it's supposedly someone that you probably operated on, right? Because it's like, if it's a testimony, I look at that and I think, and I'm like, oh, you know, that's probably someone who actually interacted with this person rather than somebody who is just paid to say things. Yeah. But after um, Lee Passmore's surgery, he also botched surgeries on people such as Barry Morgoloff. So he, Barry Morgoloff was someone who had wanted surgery because he had this back pain because he worked in pool service. His job was really physically demanding. So essentially what happened in this surgery is it was one that was a little bit more commonplace and Dunch ended up grabbing this instrument that uh, could damage the spine. 
And Kirby, who was the assisting vascular surgeon, he just tried to stop him and just eventually just left the room because he was so mad at this mistake that Dunch was making. Like he knew this was a big mistake. And what happened as a result of that surgery was there were these bone fragments that were left in Morgoloff's spinal canal. And now he has to walk with a cane. So he was, as you can imagine, in extreme pain when he woke up. And from what I read, it says that his scar tissue continues to grow and he's losing more and more function on his left side. So you think about it and what's happening with these patients isn't just like, a, oh, this went wrong. It's like, a, this is a pretty debilitating injury that will now affect them for the rest of their lives. And that's in the ones who were lucky. He had patients who died because of these surgeries. I think I remember that case where, was he the one who was talking about how he has a kid and then it was sad because he's like, I can't run alongside her bike? Um, It may have been. I don't quite remember because I listened to the podcast about a month ago. Okay, because I think it might have been him because they were talking about how like, see, I listened to it maybe a couple of weeks ago, but I only listened to it once. So I feel like if you average the two of us, it's probably about the same amount of information. But there was one of the patients where he basically he kept losing like more function and he was talking about all the stuff that he was going to miss out on. And I think it's like you were saying is like, it's super sad, but then it's also like, it's this, I feel like those people have so much to work through because like you said, it's like, it's going to impact the rest of their lives. Yeah. Also, the number of times they referred to different surgeries and them just being like, oh, yeah, we just like left a sponge in there or just like left some hardware just floating around. And I was just like, that's just so freaky. I feel like it really shook my confidence in like the medical community and especially like people who practice medicine as a whole, because I was like, if they're just like leaving this here, that's really scary because it makes you question, like, if you're going in for a surgery or something, like, what if something goes wrong like that? What if they just, what if they just forget a sponge in you like that? Oh, it just seems so awful. So another person that he had operated on was his good friend, Jerry Summers. So Jerry Summers was somebody that he was friends with since high school. They played football together. He kind of, Jerry was kind of like his assistant when Dunch moved to Texas, and he lived with him for a while. And so when Jerry needed a surgery because he uh, was experiencing some back pain, or he was just generally experiencing some pain, so what had caused this pain was he originally had an injury from high school that was exacerbated by a car accident, and so he was like, well, I'll just get my friend Christopher Dunch to operate on me. And then after the surgery, it resulted in him becoming a paraplegic and he can't move from the neck down. So it pretty much drastically impacted his quality of life. So what happened was Dunch had actually injured the vertebral artery, which caused a lot of bleeding. And so he had put an anticoagulant to stop the bleeding, but it had put like a lot of pressure on Summer's spine. After the surgery, Chris Dunch seemed to kind of like avoid being by Jerry for a while. Jerry was always calm with Chris, but he seemed pretty upset overall. He had alleged that supposedly the night prior, Dunch was doing coke with him. But in an article that I read, it said Summers had actually gone to dinner the night before. But he said that he made these allegations because he was just really upset because his he was like, my friend's not here and my doctor's not here, which I feel like is a very understandable feeling. If you had this surgery that had gone so wrong, you would think that you'd want your friend and your doctor to be there. But as a result of this, Baylor ended up ordering Dunch to take some drug tests 
he kind of stalled, said he got lost on his way to the lab. And later he had a psych evaluation and he was told to stick to minor surgeries because, you know, he had had several bad outcomes at this point. I remember the thing where he was going for his drug test and the first time he got lost and the next time he lost his ID. And then I don't know if it was this round of drug tests or another one that he did, but then when he finally did it, the results came back as diluted. Yeah, so that was actually, from what I read, it was a different round of drug tests, but I know that there were definitely some sketchy things going on with those drug tests, it seems, or at least to my eye, that's what it looked like. I guess I'm a, just a very different person because I know like sometimes you'll, you'll have to do them like when you start a new job or a new employer and stuff. And I'm that person who's like, I can't eat anything with poppy seeds because sometimes poppy seeds have false positives. Meanwhile, this guy's just like getting lost and forgetting his ID yeah. and diluting stuff. And I'm just like, what if my poppy seed bagel sets it off? I know. I'm like, I feel like I'm in the same boat as you, Lee, and I'm like, okay, no poppy seeds. Be very careful. I've never had to take a drug test, though. They don't have teachers take drug tests, which I was, I just feel like that's kind of weird because like some of the other professions that they do, I'm like, you have them take a drug test, but you don't have us take a drug test. Not that I want to take a drug test. Just like, well... Actually, I wouldn't really care. It'd just be kind of annoying because I'd have to go and take it. But I just look at it and I'm like, well, okay, like, I guess my job isn't important enough to go and take a drug test. <laughs> it's almost like it's like you want to take drug tests for your job just because it's like has this certain status level of importance. <laughs> Precisely. I want to feel like my job is important enough for me to need to take a drug test so I can pass it and, you know, wow my employer with my flying colors. Just don't eat any poppy seeds and you'll be fine. I won't. Because I learned about that when I read a news story about some pregnant lady who was getting her labs done and then it came back for like, I don't, what does poppy, what does poppy make? See, this is how much I know about drugs. I want to say it's like opium or like opiates. I don't know for sure. I think it's, yeah, I think it is. And so then it came back positive for that. I guess she was like super embarrassed, which I would be too, because she had like eaten a poppy seed muffin that morning. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I look at it and I originally got wind of the fact that poppy seeds can set off your drug tests back when I was in high school because we were competing for sports and our coaches would tell us like the day of a competition, they would tell us, you know, do not have anything with poppy seeds. Like a couple days before, a week before, no poppy seeds. They were like, because if they pull you aside for random drug testing and you test positive, because you've had poppy seeds, we'll be real mad. And I was like, I mean, I would be too. <laughs> That's so interesting. Also, a little bit more of an update on Jerry Summers. I actually read an article that said that he passed away. I believe it was this year. <gasps> yeah, I was so sad when I read that. I was like, oh my goodness. I don't know. It just seemed even more sad after reading that. It was so sad too, because I think it was... Now, I honestly forget whose ex-girlfriend it was because that whole move to Texas with Dr. Dunch and Jerry kind of confused me on who was who because there's a lot of names. But I know one of the women was talking about when after everything happened and how she basically took care of him for a little bit, but then he was obviously processing some stuff. So then it just like didn't work out and how they don't like see each other or talk to each other anymore because it's just like too much has happened. And I was like, that's so sad. Yeah, so I think that was Jerry's ex-girlfriend who was taking care of him. 
Um, but I remember there was that story from the podcast where he had kind of like turned his chair into a battering ram, so to speak, where he had uh, essentially tried to hit her with his uh, wheelchair. Do you remember that story? Yes. Which I guess I never really thought about how heavy wheelchairs are on their own. They're pretty, they're pretty heavy. And like, they can move, I think, decently fast, you know? I think it said like, what, somewhere, give or take a couple miles, like around like seven or eight, eight to ten miles an hour is I think what the podcast said, which I was like, oh, I guess that's pretty, it's pretty fast. That is pretty fast. Like comparing that to running speeds, that's, that's pretty fast. Yeah. So I thought that that was just so sad. What happened with his girlfriend at the time? Well, now ex-girlfriend, you know, I just thought that was so sad because it seemed like they were a good fit for each other. And then like after the surgery happened, it feels like or to me, it felt like everything had kind of fallen apart in their relationship. And it was just overall just very tragic. So after Jerry's surgery, I believe Dunch moved hospitals. Let me double check my outline. Yeah. So after Baylor Plano, he went to Dallas Medical Center where he operated on Floella Brown and Mary Eford. And only after Dallas Medical was he reported to the Texas Medical Board. So he hadn't been reported to the data bank yet, which I believe I saw something where they tried to go back and charge Baylor Plano with like, I think it was like $10,000 or something like that. Like they tried to uh, go back and kind of come for them for not, not saying anything because, you know, they essentially just let him leave. They were like, you know, we don't agree with what you're doing you should resign. And so he resigned and then he went to Dallas Medical Center. Yeah. But then if I remember, they ended up like taking it back and just being kind of like, oh, you don't have to pay anymore. Yeah. Yeah. They did. Which I was like, okay, like that's not much of a deterrent. Yeah. And so this is where we see some of those more tragic surgeries. Like, for example, with Kelly Martin, she was a 55-year-old woman, an elementary school teacher. And what ultimately happened was after her surgery, her legs had become really discolored. Uh, she was in a lot of pain and she was sedated because she was, you know, slapping and clawing at her legs because she was in so much pain. And she internally bled to death. Dunch had cut a major vessel in her spinal cord. And so after this, Dunch was ordered to take another blood test. So I think it was a drug test, not a blood test, but he was ordered to take another test. The first one came back as being diluted with tap water and this next one was clean, which again, this is kind of where I get those sketchy vibes where I'm like, I feel like if your test is coming back as diluted with water, that to me seems like you have something to hide. Well, I know the podcast mentioned too is that a diluted test apparently is categorized as a failed test. Which I feel like kind of makes sense. Yeah, because it's like, how can you tell anything from a diluted test? Plus, it's like, why would you want to dilute it if you've done nothing wrong? I feel like people don't just go around diluting their drug tests. Yeah, because I feel like it's already stressful enough to go and get a drug test. You know, you're like, I just want to make sure that I pass this. Like, why would you do anything that would put that into a questionable position? Yeah, but again... We're very straight and narrow, so <laughs> we definitely are. I feel I feel like Lee and you and I are the people who are like, I don't understand how people could break the law. I don't understand how people could go and do these bad things. So the other person that he operated on while he was at the new hospital 
was Floella Brown. Essentially what happened is she had a lot of excessive bleeding during her surgery and then he said that he was going to do a craniotomy on her. The hospital didn't even have the correct equipment to do it. So obviously that did not happen. The operating staff was like, what are you doing? Yeah, I don't know. And I think, like I said before, like this is the question. Like the two options are either it's like, he didn't know what he was doing, but then it's like the thing where you don't want to admit that. So then he's just trying to be like, a craniotomy, like that is the next step. Or the other option would be like, he has this weird interest and just wants to like, do one. Yeah, I mean, looking and I mean, I'm no doctor, but it sounds like what happened with her was she seemed fine when she woke up, but afterwards she lost consciousness because of pressure in her brain. And a craniotomy is supposed to relieve pressure in your brain. But what happened with that was I think he had a... I believe he had pierced and blocked an artery with a misplaced screw. So it was Dunch's fault, actually, why she was having those issues. So the craniotomy thing was like the next day type of thing. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Because I was thinking he just like sewed up her spine and was like, let's do a craniotomy because I don't know, X, Y, Z. Because why not? No, he was, uh, I believe, operating on Mary Eford at the time when he heard about Floella Brown and he was like, well, we need to do a craniotomy. And they were like, we don't even have the stuff to do that. So that's not going to happen. Also, I saw one of your bullet points under Mary Eford thing. And I remember because I'm not exactly sure, but I think it was one of the earlier episodes. And I think it might have been Dr. Henderson. Was it? I don't remember the actual doctor's name. Never mind. But one of the doctors that was being interviewed was like, yeah, so I had a feeling like basically that Dr. Dunch like didn't go home because he was like, there was a hole in his scrubs and you could see his butt. And then the next day there was a hole in his scrubs and you could see his butt. And then maybe even like a third day. And he was like, and this is how I, I knew he didn't go home and change. And I was like, first of all, that is disgusting and not sterile. But also, it's like, just in general, like, why are you walking around with a giant, like, hole in your pants? Yeah, I'm like, that was, I I heard that part too. And I was like, that's just kind of gross. I'm like, I look at it and I'm like, if I wore the same clothes to work for three days, people would notice. And I'm like, I guess for most people, like, because it's scrubs, you know, you wouldn't notice initially. But I thought that that was really interesting that the other doctor picked up on that because he could see the hole and he could see his butt. I was like, oh my gosh. And I think the thing is, too, is like you were saying, like, unless it's like different colors, which I feel like are more associated with nurses, like they'll have different colored scrubs. I feel like doctor scrubs kind of always look the same. And so I feel like you wouldn't know. Or even maybe there was like if there was like a small rip in the sleeve, you wouldn't notice. But I think it's probably what made it memorable is that you're like, I am looking at my coworker's butt right now. Yeah. Yeah, I could see that. So what happened with Mary Efert was after Dunch had operated on her, um, during the surgery, I believe it was either his or Floella's. I'm not quite sure. I was reading the article and I couldn't quite place it, but I'm pretty sure it was Mary's. Um, people had said that he had like pinpoint pupils. So, you know, some people might potentially say that that could be an indicator of alteration, if you will. But what happened with Mary Eford is she woke up and she was in massive pain and this is kind of where Dr. Henderson comes in. He went and he looked at her x-rays and he had, you know, the hospital call and called him up and asked him to come in and look at those x-rays and kind of see if he could fix anything. And that's when he found that Dunch had made three holes in her spine, severed the nerve to her leg, 
her bladder and completely removed a bundle of nerves. And now Mary Eford has to use a wheelchair. So after this point, he was no longer allowed to operate at Dallas Medical. And Dr. Henderson, rightfully so, was very much onto him. He had heard things about this guy in the medical community. And seeing it firsthand, he was appalled. I think what's interesting about this, and I think the podcast might have opened, I think it started with maybe Floella or Mary in one of the early episodes, and then kind of went back to saying like, oh, but this wasn't the first botched surgery. And so I think it's like just interesting that it takes so long for something to catch up with someone. Yeah, it's really frightening to think that like in the medical community, he was allowed to get away with this for so long. And, you know, I have to say, Dr. Kirby and Dr. Henderson seem like two people who were very much into making sure that this guy was not going to continue practicing medicine and not going to continue these botched surgeries and essentially uh, like slandering the name of the medical community in a way, because I'm sure that no doctor wants to be known for being in a field where somebody is going and botching these surgeries like that. I didn't do the extra research outside of listening to the podcast, but the way the podcast presented it made it seem that without Dr. Kirby and Dr. Henderson, that none of this would have really come out. Or maybe if it did, it would have been like years later. So I think, I don't know. I was like, because I feel like you could either get really freaked out by this podcast or another thing is like you could you know find hope in the fact that like there are those doctors that exist that like will make it their mission to make things known and try at least to put a stop i think i erred definitely more on the side of getting freaked out by the podcast i was like okay so like if i ever need a surgery i was like i'm gonna go back i'm gonna check and see how many times they transferred hospitals i'm going to go back and check and see if I can talk to other doctors and see what they say about them. I'm going to go and like check and see how long they've been practicing in the field because if they've been practicing in the field for a longer time, that likely means that they're a more trustworthy doctor because otherwise things probably would have caught up to them by then. You know, you would think. So I think I erred a little bit more on the side of making or like taking from this the idea that, well, I need to make sure that whoever I'm getting my medical care from is going to be responsible just because you know, I think most doctors and most people in the medical field out there are going into the medical field for the right reasons and to do good. But I think, you know, you do have to be very wary of anybody who's out there who's not doing good things for the medical field, who is intentionally out there to, or I shouldn't say intentionally, who is potentially going to sabotage, sabotage a surgery or something else that is critical to your health. Or if they're just incompetent. Precisely. I think one point that this podcast raised that I think is interesting is that it seems like it's not enough to just check your state's medical malpractice, like, I don't know, log, directory, whatever it's called, because it sounds like they don't always have all the information. Yeah. Which I don't know if it's true or not, because I don't spend a lot of time looking stuff up and like fact checking like random doctors, but the at least for this specific situation is that it sounds like even if they did look them up on like the Texas medical board up until the case really broke and he was put on trial and all that, that wouldn't have helped anyone. Yeah, I agree. 
I don't know. I think, and that's something that's like kind of frightening to think is, you know, he got away with this for so long. So after he was at, I believe it was Dallas Medical Center, he went to Legacy Surgery Center, which is an outpatient facility. And he had a couple more botched surgeries. For example, the one of Jacqueline Troy. After that one, he was reported to the National Practitioner Data Bank, which is good. That was to kind of get in place the movement to eventually, you know, suspend his license. Um, I think they do investigation. I don't think it's that they just suspend the license initially. And University General had also given him operating privileges soon after he had moved to that outpatient center. To kind of wrap this up and uh, tell you the ending of this story, he operated on another patient at University General that didn't go well. His last name is Glidewell. And after that patient, Dallas's ABC News affiliate kind of caught wind of the story and they contacted the board. And I think that that really and truly is what motivated the board to suspend his license shortly after that is because they realized, you know, if this is getting to the press, clearly we should be looking into this further. I feel like this isn't exclusive to this situation because I feel like a lot of situations where maybe something's a little off and then I feel like a more intense follow-up happens as media attention increases on it. Definitely. Because I think the thing is too, where if it's on the local news, then it means more people know about it. And if more people know about it, they probably don't want to go to your hospital, which means it hits your bottom line. Yeah. And I think too, like, so part of the issue in my opinion on this whole thing was I feel like the fact that neurosurgeons bring in so much cash for the hospital, I feel like that was a big issue because you had these hospitals hiring him after he was let go or like left other hospitals. And it was, it seemed like it was a fairly rapid ish turnover, like, you know, within a couple of years. And when I was looking at it, one of the articles I read said that neurosurgeons make an estimated $2.4 million a year for the hospital. And I was like, I knew it was a lot, but I didn't know it was that much. And it kind of made me wonder, like, in terms of hospital care, do you think their decision in hiring him would have been different if we didn't have a for-profit medical system? I'm not really sure because I feel like the whole medical system in general and healthcare system is just such a huge, complicated mess here that I feel like you kind of have to be like health policy or like doctor or something sort of expert to have like any sort of grasp on it so this is just my general like thoughts or views or whatever but I feel like it would be different if they didn't bring in as much weight for the hospital or let's say maybe he wasn't a neurosurgeon and he was like I don't know something else which I feel like doesn't exactly the analogy doesn't exactly carry because like let's say if you were you know a general family practitioner like you're probably not doing spinal surgeries that could like leave someone paralyzed but i feel like if they weren't making as much money for the hospital they might be more willing to like follow up or like disciplinary action sooner because they're like well you know if this happens we're not losing that much money yeah because don't quote me on this but i want to say like somewhere on the podcast it said something about if the doctor essentially goes back and does a lawsuit against the hospital for like lost wages or like slander to their name essentially the hospital could end up having to pay like tons and tons of money towards that doctor. And that's why a lot of medical facilities won't report doctors, even if they know that they're potentially causing issues and potentially malpracticing. 
Which I find is interesting because it's like, okay, maybe if you have a little bit of a doubt, like you're, you're like, okay, like, do we want to risk this whole big lawsuit or something? I don't know. I'm like, well, if he's committing malpractice, like, obviously you should report him to the board. So like, in my head, I'm just kind of like, so you're not reporting him because you're afraid that he's going to sue you. Well, then make sure you have all your facts straight and you have your evidence lined up. Yeah. Plus, I look at it and I'm like, hospitals make so much a year. I think that they could... I say this as someone who has no experience in hospitals, but I'm like, I feel like hospitals make a significant amount of revenue yearly, and I feel like they would be able to um, handle a lawsuit if they truly felt like the person was malpracticing. I think it goes back to what you mentioned earlier, though, is like most hospitals aren't public hospitals. They're private, I think. Yeah. In the US, at least, I believe they're primarily private institutions. And that's part of the reason why our healthcare is so expensive is because they push a lot of the costs onto us and they are for profit, you know? There was like one or two other questions that I wanted to ask. One, and I think that this is an interesting question. I don't know that I can find a solid answer to it, but one of the things that I was wondering is, do you think that doctors should be held accountable to some extent for patient deaths? Like, should they be tracking how many patient deaths they have? Should they be tracking like how many bad outcomes they have and like data tracking that and then being held accountable if they find, you know, that it's way more than it should be. Yeah, I think that's interesting because I think they mentioned it in the podcast too, where they're saying, oh, they don't necessarily make all this available to the public or not all of it available right away because they don't want that one case where like the person did nothing wrong and then it gets out there and then their whole career is ruined. So it's like, I see that part. I feel like there could be a a balance in a way where it's like, Maybe like the medical board tracks it and it's not public until it reaches a certain threshold kind of thing. But I feel like it's probably good information to know. I agree. I feel like they should. I don't know if they already do this in hospitals, but I feel like they should definitely be analyzing data to see outcomes of patients for each doctor. And I mean, I feel like a lot of what happens with doctors and surgeons and people in the medical field you know, a lot of the times you have people who are coming to you who are very sick or very injured, and sometimes there's nothing you can do or not as much that you can do. And so I think like holding doctors accountable for every single death or like every single thing that happens is not best practice because you have to realize like there are some things that are likely going to go wrong. But I think if you can track an overall trend, I think that at the very least it could be useful information. I agree, too, in the sense is like, I think you have to be careful with this because, like you were saying, people go into a doctor for all different reasons and all different, I guess, starting points where it's like some person may be physically more healthy, so it's like more likely that they'll come out of it fine, but then some people might not be. And it's like, I don't think it's sad, but like I feel like sometimes it's like, maybe the surgery doesn't help or like doesn't go right. But I think the important thing is like looking at the overall trend of it because it's like, for example, with this specific case, it wasn't just one time or maybe two times in a career. It was like, because I know they're one of the doctors that was featured on the podcast a lot was saying this, like some doctors have like one mistake and it's like, it really is a mistake. Like, they're not intentional at all or something. And the person stops practicing. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. It's tricky because it's like, you want to know this because you want to make an informed decision when you go. 
But I can see too how it's like, I feel like bodies are very complex. And so it's like, you have to be careful that it doesn't, like maybe it's just the way things happen with that specific person and you don't want that to necessarily negatively impact someone's career. Yeah, I could see that. So after listening to this podcast, uh, do you think it changes the way that you look at the medical field or surgery? I'm not exactly sure. Maybe a little bit because I thought like, you're like, oh, you go to the medical board and if there's no flags, it's fine. So maybe a little in that sense. I mean, I was always freaked out by surgery. So like, I don't think any of that has changed. I would say on the scale of not anxious to anxious, I'm definitely like (laughs) more on the side to anxious. So I feel like I'd be that person who's just like obsessively researching anyway. What about you? Same here. I feel like I would definitely be one of those people who obsessively researches. I think I would also ask, I have a couple of like family members who are in medicine and I think I would definitely ask their opinion and kind of see if there's anything that I should be looking for. But I think it definitely... I think this podcast and the story of Christopher Dunch definitely made me a little bit more wary about the medical field in general. And it really put it into perspective that it's kind of my responsibility as somebody who is, you know, going and seeking care that I need to go and I need to do my research. I think also, and I think a lot of people know this in general, is you can always go get a second opinion. And I think that could help because I feel like, I don't know about you, but when someone who has a lot of knowledge in something like sits down and talks to me about something, I'm like, yeah, yeah, they're right. Like they know everything. And then I think with something like this, it's like, I think it almost helps to like go see someone else, even if that person agrees, because it's like, okay, it's another person who agrees. And if they don't agree, you're like, oh, maybe I should go see a third person. Yeah. To like confirm or figure out. What's going on? I agree. I think that that's definitely good advice. To wrap up, what happened to Dr. Christopher Dunch? Oh, I forgot that we had to wrap it up. Um, Well, he is in jail. So in June 2013, he was told that he had to stop operating. His license was temporarily suspended. And in December in 2013, his license was permanently revoked. People were initially worried that with a temporary license suspension that he would go back and he would actually continue practicing. Uh, His life seems to have gone awry a little bit more since then. He filed for bankruptcy, about $1 million of bankruptcy, uh, and he moved to Colorado with his parentals. Um, He ended up getting a DUI and was sent to a detox facility. Sometimes he would return to Texas to see his ex-girlfriend, Wendy Young, and his two sons. And later he was sent to a psychiatric facility because he was trying to get into a bank in Texas and he was all bloody. I think the bank was closed. And he was also arrested for shoplifting from a Walmart. So in terms of his trial, he was charged with five counts of assault and one count of injury to an elderly person, and he was convicted in 2015. So it looks like as of 2018, his life sentence was upheld on an appeal. And so he lost his appeal in 2018. I think for me, since like I don't know the specifics Like, I wasn't on the jury. So I think for me, even, the more interesting questions are what we were discussing at the end, more related to the healthcare system and accountability. Because in the end, Dr. Junch is just one person. So even if there's accountability, like, for him, 
if it's a systemic problem, getting one person isn't really going to fix anything. Yeah, but I mean, I look at that and I'm like, if it's a systemic problem, it's a good start. Well, I know the someone on the podcast was mentioning, too, is that a lot of the hospitals that were affected by this case started implementing more rigorous policies. So I think, like you said, is like it's a good start and I think it helps people be more aware. Definitely. And I think that those hospitals, too, will be a little bit more wary about the people they hire and what's happening in their operating rooms, which I think is a good thing, especially if it's a high risk field like medicine. I think that that's probably a good thing. Thank you so much for joining us for our recording about Dr. Christopher Dunch, a.k.a. Dr. Death. We'd highly recommend you check out the original podcast by Lauren Beal, put out by Wondery, but I know I listened to it on Apple Podcasts, so I'm pretty sure you can find it anywhere that you listen. So for our next book club, we are going to be reading Twilight or Midnight Sun by Stephanie Meyer. So you can pick which one you want to read if you want to read it from Edward's perspective, feel free to read Midnight Sun. If you want to read it from Bella's perspective, go ahead and read Twilight. And that episode will be dropping on July 5th. We hope you found our discussion on Dr. Death, the story of Dr. Christopher Dunch, interesting, and we would love to hear your thoughts on it. You can send us a message through email, DM us on Instagram, or post in our episode discussion channel on Discord, which, you know, we're trying to get up and running and lively. And don't forget to rate Zillennials Podcast on Apple Podcasts. You can find us at Zillennials Podcast on Instagram or email us at zillennialspodcast at gmail.com. Feel free to hit the subscribe button and stay a while. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time.